Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 139 of F Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's episode features an adventure and landscape photographer living in Canmore, Alberta, near Banff National Park, Jeff Bartlett. Jeff and I covered some really fun topics this week, including what exactly is adventure photography, authenticity in photography, minimizing our impact on nature, shooting what you love, and why do you take photographs, and a lot more. Over on Patreon this week, Jeff and I talked all about his relationship with the Instagram platform. All right, well, before we get started, I wanted to let you know about an exciting online course being offered by my friend and former podcast guest, Shane McDermott. You might remember Shane from episode 108, where he shared his thoughts on visual centricity, awareness, and constant creative flow, and how this approach to photography can change how you interact with the natural world through your photographs. Shane has created a six-week online course all about post-processing your images in a way that ensures that the final result reflects your actual experience in the field. Shane calls the course Transforming Your Passion into Pixels, the Art of Enlightened Image Editing. In his course, Shane talks all about how you can take creative control, learn to make the look and feel of every finished image as unique and vibrant as the moment you captured it. If you're feeling intimidated or overwhelmed with photo processing or frustrated with randomly adjusting sliders in hopes of creating beautiful images or uninspired with your old tried and true methods, break free of your set slider moves and bring your creative vision vision alive like never before. As an exclusive offer to podcast listeners, if you register in the next 72 hours, you will receive a 25% off this six-week online course. Just use the code FSTOP25 at the time of purchase to receive your discount. Just check out the liner notes for a link to the course or visit shanemcdermottphotography.com. That's S-H-A-N-E-M-C-D-E-R-M-O-T-T photography.com. Okay, let's get to the show. Well, Jeff Bartlett, it's so cool to have you on the podcast. Yeah, looking forward to chatting. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem, man. I'm thanks for thanks for reaching out, and uh, I saw that you were a Nature First member, and that was really exciting to see. So, thanks for supporting that cause as well. Yeah, I wish I could uh, say that I've done more uh, since signing up, but it's something I definitely liked looking into when it first came out. I was excited about it because certainly. Um, Living here in Banff National Park, uh, we see a lot of what heavy traffic does to some of these key photo locations. So it's cool to see an organization trying to uh, not just bring that leave no trace principles to it, but to put it into photographers terms. Yeah, um, definitely see how important that is right now. Yeah, I bet, especially living so close to to Banff. Well, for people that may not know you, um, even though you have like a trillion Instagram followers, um, <laughs> Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, kind of uh, kind of what you do. Is photography full time? And kind of would love to hear more about like how you even got into this. 
Oh, I feel so prepared because I was just writing up a about page about myself today. But uh, <laughs> nice, how time. I'm, uh, yeah, I mean, I call myself an adventure photographer. I've lived in the Rockies since uh, 2011, first in Jasper National Park. And then the last three and a half years, I've been down in the Bow Valley. I live in Canmore, which is right outside of Banff. And uh, it's been my, yeah, I've been full time since 2012, I guess, um, and kind of shooting since about 2008. But um, every year, uh, there's a bit of a, a transition, but I, I primarily shoot kind of three different the three different types of clients. I do a little bit of editorial work and then a lot of work with destination marketing organizations, hmm. uh, doing tourism things that have an adventure focus. Um, and then, yeah, a few different technology companies. Uh, I work with Samsung and Dell every year as well. Nice. As we get further in the podcast, I'd love to talk to you more about kind of how that evolved. But uh, So you're doing photography full-time and I'm curious, like, how did you even get started in this crazy world? <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. It's such a long process, I think, that um, I think maybe I always wanted to be in uh, journalism. But for a long time, I worked seasonally, and which afforded me the luxury of traveling. And uh, I used to read magazines like crazy. And somewhere along the lines, I got the idea that I wanted to be a travel writer. Hmm. I went back to school and, and took journalism. And this was at a time in the late 2000s when... Uh, a lot of magazines and newspapers were going broke. Um, so I kind <laughs> Great of graduated. A, yeah, exactly. I graduated probably the worst possible timing. Um, but the interesting thing was because at the time they were laying off photographers. So writers that could take photos were sort of a commodity because you could kind of cover both aspects of it. Yeah. And then, um, so that's how I got started just doing freelance assignments at the time I was living in South America. Um, immediately after I finished school. So I was also living in a world where I didn't have to, you know, make the same amount of money as I do now that I live in North America uh, to get through a year. Yeah. But uh, and then it just sort of transitioned from, you know, probably being 75% writing and 25% photography to, you know, went to 50-50 after a couple of years. And then when I moved home in 2011, I just knew I wanted to focus strictly on photography, uh, mostly because it lets you be out in the field way more. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a writer, you end up doing a lot of interviews on the telephone. And you don't necessarily have to go experience something where there's no there's no substitute for being there for a photographer, so it works out great. What uh, what kind of writing did you do? I was all travel writing for different uh, magazines. I did a lot of, I mean, everything I've always done has sort of been in the outdoor adventure space. So, um, I'm writing for newspapers and, and magazines about bike packing, mountain biking in different places, or just generic travel. Um, I lived in South America. I wrote, helped write a guidebook about Argentina and uh, yeah, diff, kind of piecemeal projects here and there, but a little bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, like have, how has your transition from mostly writing to mostly photography, like how has your uh, background in journalism and writing helped you make that transition? I think it comes into play in a couple of really great ways. Um, first of all, for, as a freelance writer, you send out query letters to publications a lot. So that this is a story idea. This is who I am and why I should cover it for you. And, you know, in that process, you get turned down a lot until you learn that you really have to hone in the, the pitch so it fits a magazine perfectly. So you're not just telling them what your idea is, but you're telling them it's going to be a three-page spread that fits this portion of their magazine. 
So when I get into photography, I took that same template and I use it whether I'm approaching a business or a magazine with this uh, story idea that's you know photography based. But it really allows me to illustrate exactly what I'm going to do for them and how they're going to use that and why you know it fits their overall marketing strategy or you know in the case of a business or just fits into their their publication. So I think just taking that mindset helped a lot. Um, and then more from the you know practical side of view, um, as a writer, you're always looking for a story and you're trying to craft like a story arc. So I think I take that also into photography where, you know, in this age of social media we're in now, you tend to shoot a lot of hero images um, and maybe you forget to tell the story from start to finish. So just having that, um, having my mind sort of trained to always pick up stories. So I get detail shots along with those hero shots to, you know, kind of fill in the gaps that might not be there. That's awesome. So are you like, it sounds like you've had a lot of experience with failure, which is actually pretty awesome. Like, um, were you just cold emailing these people or writing letters or like, how did, how has your approach to, um, garnering business for yourself evolved over the years? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Uh, it started out with a lot of cold emails, um, and, uh, just, you know, reaching out and, um, you know, once you do kind of figure out the, you know, the places that you're getting a bit of traction or maybe they published the story or two early on, just, just fostering those relationships. And I think it's changed a lot recently, um, or certainly in the last few years. Um, there's this weird, I mean, there's still, I still reach out to companies I really want to work for, uh, but maybe I'm a little more strategic in who I'm reaching out to. Um, but I'd say on a year to year basis now, my, you know, probably 50% of my clients are returned, uh, if not more than that. Mm-hmm. And um, which obviously makes you feel a lot more comfortable and maybe makes it more sustainable. But uh, there's still a little bit of public outreach, um, but just learning to be, you know, way more strategic helps a lot. And then the nice thing about this, you know, again, it's going back to that social media era is uh, because of a, a good reach on Instagram uh, especially I do have companies that do reach out to me because they see my work online, which wasn't available to me when I started out. Um, but certainly spending the time to build those, um, you know, certainly is paying off now. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned that being strategic is really important and figuring out the right type of person to pitch an idea to. Um, are you like calling places? Are you writing them letters? Are you emailing? Are you contacting people on LinkedIn? Like what, what approaches are you using in order to kind of like be, use that strategy? Yeah. Typically I always want to get directly to the person uh, that I want to speak with at a company. And usually that's going to be through email, um, not on the phone, Mm -hmm. but I'll, um, you know, in the, I guess in figuring out what that email address is, you know, I do go to a couple of conferences every year and just shake people's hands and talk. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe it's just, you know, I have used LinkedIn as well. And you track down, um, you know, the director of marketing for a company would be someone I'd want to speak to. So you find out who that is. And then you can usually figure out what their email address is. <laughs> right. A little creative thinking <laughs> or figuring out what someone else's email is at the company. Um, and uh, yeah, just trying to reach out with a pretty well-crafted email initially. Uh, It's not sales heavy by any means, but just sort of introducing myself, you know, saying I have an idea and would love to talk if, if, um, you know, they have any interest or need for additional freelance photography. Nice. Um, It's amazing how many people I know that, uh, 
have a, you know, whether they have a large social media following or just like an online presence and they're, they spend a lot of time waiting for work to come to them. And I think the, you know, whether it's a new client or an existing client, I don't always, I won't sit around and wait for them to come to me. I think it's important that you always want to reach out and remind them that you're still here, remind them that you're still, you know, doing your thing and you know, hopefully they'll come back to you as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I suppose you also have to get really used to just either getting completely ghosted or getting like a lot of no's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think the it's odd. I, I think I used to with magazines, they're usually pretty good about telling you no. <laughs> um, where I find now um, if I am cold calling someone or, or like cold emailing them, um, if I hear back, it's usually favorable and it's usually uh, will lead to something or at least lead to a conversation, whether or not that turns into sure. work where, um, you know, more often than not, you just never hear from anybody. And um, it just doesn't, I don't know. I don't know if it's just a personality thing. It's just never hurt my feelings. If people don't write me back, I can probably justify that. Oh, I probably ended up in their spam box anyway. Right. <laughs> and it doesn't, doesn't ruin my day. But Yeah. And what, uh, I'm curious, like, what are, like, what are you doing in order to identify potential clients? Like, I mean, I don't know. I, I've always been overwhelmed with like, well, like, where do I even start in terms of thinking about who to even want to reach out to? Like, how have you figured out how to marry like what you do with what people might need? Yeah, I always go back to this one piece of advice I got in school. And at the time, I remember thinking it was foolish. Um, and uh, now I, I realize, you know, so it's super simple. It's just begin where you want to end. And you know, to me, what that means is you identify where you want to be five years from now and who you want your, you know, what your five dream clients are. Mm-hmm. And you want to approach companies that are either those dream, dream clients or you want to take steps to actually that will lead directly to that. So, you know, that's when I moved to Jasper, um, you know, there's lots of destination weddings in the Rockies and you're definitely tempted to say, oh, I could shoot weddings. Um to make money as a photographer right now, but that doesn't lead me to where I want to go. So it was kind of a pointless, it would be a pointless thing for me to do in the grand scheme of things. So just ignoring those quick pathways and just saying like, that's where I'm going. And those are the companies that can get me there. And, you know, a natural progression might be a small, you know, a small clothing manufacturer might lead to, you know, the next step up. And then, you know, two steps away, you're working for, you know, larger companies like Eddie Bauer or something. He's, become one of my best clients year after year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's smart, man. So let's talk a little bit about adventure photography versus, you know, travel photography. I know you're photographing a lot for companies that um, emphasize, you know, tourism and travel, but um, it's, it looks like you're kind of more trying to sell the idea of adventure. And I'm curious, kind of, what do you see as the distinction between those two styles of photography? Uh, I think the biggest thing is it's always to me when I travel somewhere, I don't, um, you know, I don't travel somewhere to go stand in front of a landscape and take a photo of it. I typically travel if I'm traveling for my personal reason. I love mountain biking. I love hiking. I love skiing. And I'm going to do one of those activities in a place. Um, and of course, well, I appreciate my new surroundings, but I'm going to do something. Um, and I think that what a lot of travel photography ends up being is these little snippets that aren't necessarily real life or even a real travel experience so i think i mean i always just attribute adventure to the idea of that you're going out and you're either physically challenging yourself or you're just you know immersing yourself more in that nature and i I imagine it's the same you live in colorado so 
you know, when you're not shooting or you have a day off, imagine you're getting outside and doing things. You don't just go look at things as much, which in my mind is what a lot of travel photography has become. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say that's a good point. Like usually I'm planning like a big hike or a backpacking trip or a mountain climb. So it's definitely a lot different than like driving to a brewery in another city or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, I was just down in Aspen and, uh, you know, of course I went up and checked out Maroon Bells and we just drove up the road and you walk five minutes in and you're at one of these classic landscape locations. Um, reminded me a lot of what we do here when we go to Moraine Lake and Banff, super iconic spots. But to me, that's always where I start my day. Um, it's not the destination in itself. And that's what I like to showcase is you, know, you can come here and then you can go farther or do more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, you you talked a little bit earlier about, uh, you know, seeing a large impact of, you know, people visiting Banff and kind of what that has done to that location in terms of impact. And uh, I'm, I can't help but wonder, because I wonder this for myself, is um, like, do you ever feel guilty of kind of being a little bit part of the... Uh, the reason why people are going to these places. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And it's a nonstop internal debate. And certainly a lot of my friends uh, and photographers that I, you know, either get together with to, to chat about sort of photography with, or if we're out shooting, it's something we talk about a lot. And I think, um, well, I think even just a couple of years ago, I was geotagging every location. And now I've seen some of those locations that, are pretty rough shape now uh, from the number of people that have gone there mm-hmm. and definitely feel like it's, you know, I taken a step back and trying to still encourage people to go out. And I still think we can limit our impact, um, you know, not to justify like, Oh, when I go do something, it's okay. Cause I know, right. you know how to travel, but I still think we can limit our impact by, by following some basic guide rules and whether that's following the um, nature first guidelines or even just the leave no trace principles that have been around for a long time. Um, You know, we can take steps to minimize our impact, but I also rarely ever, you know, I'll say something's in Banff national park, but I won't say where anymore. And those sort of, uh, you know, just small decisions that might, at least people have to find it and, and do the work to find those locations, which, just by creating that sort of hurdle, you're going to limit the numbers that go to certain places. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then even being aware that if you are, you find yourself off trail or you find yourself somewhere that, you know, not if, you know, even if you're just in a gray area where you're, you know, you're somewhere where you're allowed, but it's closed half the year for wildlife. We have that a lot here in Banff. Mm-hmm. And like, maybe I'm not sharing that because I know, you know, coming up in three weeks, you shouldn't be there. Um, so there's no sense kind of using the social aspect of it to promote that place. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I've I've struggled with um especially for someone like you who where you're like monetizing um you know, your living is basically to get paid to take pictures of places and sell the idea of having someone else someone else come to that place and have an adventure similar to the adventure that you had. And it's it's kinda I feel like it's really hard to do that if you don't tell people where that place is. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. I definitely, I definitely feel that. And I think it's that constant, uh, you know, there's a battle of like, how much do you give and how much do you um, leave up to the person? One thing um, I always take, I always try to take a positive note online because I think there's, 
enough people attacking each other online. Right. I don't need to get involved in those conversations. But, you know, some of the examples I think of uh, last year, I had the opportunity to fly my drone uh, in Banff and Yoho National Parks, uh, working for Parks Canada. Mm-hmm. And while they owned all those images and they went there, I asked if I could publish them on my social media platforms with a message that said, you know, this is how I went about getting the permits and this is why I was approved. If you want to get this, these shots of, you know, Emerald Lake, this is the kind of work that goes into getting that shot. So I'm putting publicly at least the information associated with it out there along with the image. Um, you do always run the risk, of course, someone grabs that image and shares it on, you know, three or four different shout out accounts. And of course your caption's long gone and it just right. says an epic shot of Emerald Lake. But I always try to go through those kind of steps to, to just kind of give people that positive idea. Cause I think that's a lot more meaningful than, you know, just pointing out, Hey, you shouldn't have put your tent there. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't really, you know, it's just shaming people. Um, doesn't get us very far. Yeah. It's funny. I, uh, Back in September, I did an Instagram takeover for the uh, the tourism company that does all of the Colorado tourism. Uh, it's called Visit Colorado. And um, it was basically all about showcasing uh, autumn color in Colorado. And uh, I struggled when I when I did it because I didn't I didn't want to like point people to exact locations. But I also didn't want to say like this is in Colorado, <laughs> you know, like. It's in, so I, what I did is I just said, well, this, it's like in this area of Colorado, you know, it's like, it's near Aspen or whatever. Um, but you know, if you want to go there, you'll, you can, you can experience a similar time and adventure. Um, if you do a little bit of homework and I figured the photos, you know, the purpose of it was just to inspire people to want to come to Colorado and see, see fall colors. They probably weren't going to try to copy my photographs or anything like that. So I feel pretty much okay with it, but I definitely struggled with it a little bit in terms of trying to balance, you know, my need for wanting those places to be saved from mass extinction uh, versus actually getting people excited about Colorado. So it's, it's a hard balance. Yeah. It is a weird thing as well. I think that is a lot of the um, just sort of current style on Instagram where replicating images has become uh so common because that's to me, whenever I'm sharing an image or if I'm looking at images, when I look through your images on, on Instagram, I'm not saying, Oh, I'm going to go there and I'm going to use those camera settings at that place that time of year and get that shot. I go, wow, the fall colors are beautiful down there. You know, I always think of fall colors in the East coast, but it turns out maybe Colorado needs to be on my bucket list. And then I'll go there and, and explore on my own. And that's, that's the balance I'm trying to strike is I, of course I want people to come to Banff national park, but, we see a ton of tourists in the summer. I think it's up to 4 million people a year now are visiting Bath. Wow. And even on the busiest day in the summertime, if you park and hike two kilometers off the road, you can have a pretty independent solo adventure and not see anyone all day. Right. Everyone's going to the same 15 landmarks. And I'm just trying to encourage people to go a bit farther. I'm not just trying to add one more location to that list of you know 10 places people go to now. Yeah, I've I've I kind of share the same sentiment to some degree, but uh but um it's interesting. I've have, I've I've had some people tell me that they think I don't know, it's weird like there's risks in doing that too, right? Because then you're going to spread spread out all of that traffic um to other places too. So it's like I don't know, I don't really know what the right answer is. I just know it's something to think about. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's certainly tough. And I think it's certainly it's something that's going to keep getting pushed to the forefront because, you know, way more people we are investing more in travel now and we are spending more money getting out there to doing activities, whether it's in the same places or in, in a variety. And I know I'm going down to Patagonia in January this year. Uh, and it'll be my first trip down there in about six years. And from stories I've heard from friends, uh, it's pretty evident the changes that have taken place. So I'm curious mm-hmm. to see for myself just how much, even an isolated place that, you know, it's a, you know, it's about a 24 hour travel day from anywhere in Europe or North America to get there. And I'm interested to see what the impact is somewhere that's seeing such minimal, you know, overall a pretty minimal number of tourists, but just a massive influx. And, you know, a lot of us, uh, I'm not sure if you've been to Iceland, but a lot of us have been to Iceland shooting and you definitely see the impact there. What, uh, you know, going from almost or going from a small number of tourists to a whole lot of tourists can, uh, yeah, changes things in a hurry. Yeah. And it's interesting because it, it actually doesn't take that much time for the impact to start accumulating. Yeah. And certainly, you know, depending on the type of, um, type of landscape as well. And you take somewhere like Iceland is a good example where there's not a lot of foliage on the ground. So you're pretty quickly, you're ripping away soil, um, where maybe you take somewhere a little more tropical, um, where things grow back quicker, that impact gets covered up a lot easier. Yeah, for um, sure. Although I was talking to, um, to a photographer that lives in, uh, Kauai in Hawaii. And, uh, there's a pretty popular spot there that lots and lots and lots of tourists and photographers like to go to. Um, I think it's the, um, Queens bath on the North shore. And like, just in a matter of like five years, it went from like a very, very small kind of local kind of unknown trail to like giant ruts in the ground just from sheer numbers of people walking on the mud and stuff like that. So it's, yeah, it's pretty crazy how quickly it can happen. Yeah. And certainly I've been the last three years, um, I've led a workshop in the Faroe Islands and we're headed back, um, early, uh, yeah, early March mm-hmm. next year. And it's a location that, um, has certainly become popular in the last sort of five years. A lot of their growth has been because of Instagram and because of the, you know, unbelievable landscapes they have. And every year when we go, um, we definitely seen more fences, more, um, you know, preventing tourists from going to certain locations mm-hmm. and also landowners uh, shutting down landmarks. And, you know, they have some land use concerns that are a little different than the rest of the Nordic countries where they have a lot of private land and not a lot of free freedom of movement. So it's up to the landowners to open or close something. Mm-hmm. But it's um, it's pretty wild to see, you know, just in a few short years and still a pretty small number of tourists, how quick that can uh, can affect it. And I think that's, um, you know, it, it circles back to those, that idea of is finding ways to minimize it and maybe sometimes settling or, or actually encouraging, um, you know, sometimes the better shot or oftentimes the better shot is from the other side of a fence or it's down near the water's edge. And maybe it's not always worth getting that shot, um, you know, and leaving the, leaving the beaten path sometimes as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I know it's hard because, um, there's a lot of, like when I, I have been to Iceland and there was a lot of shots that, you know, I saw like, Oh, I really would like to go down there, 
but then you get you you kind of get to where that place is and you there's like a giant fence and you can see like oh if you would have gotten here like five years earlier it would have been fine but now there's just so many people that it's it's just not sustainable and i think that's the that's the selling point for me anyway in all of this is like the more we think about this the more i guess the less we'll have to encounter those kinds of things as photographers you know like i I don't want to go places and be told, well, you you can't photograph over there because it's been completely ruined by the hundreds of thousands of other people that came before you. So um, I want to minimize that as much as possible personally. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, I mean, of course I'm a hypocrite as well because I just right. said I was, <laughs> went to Colorado and I went to Maroon Bells. Um, but a lot of the time those iconic images of places aren't what's inspiring me to they're what they are what initially inspires me to go there, but it, I don't even necessarily need to see those landscapes. If I can go, you know, I'm, it's just more getting the idea and getting an idea of what Colorado looks like and, uh, you know, not necessarily going and replicating that. So I think, you know, some of it comes back to, uh, you know, a lot of it falls back to business because there aren't that many tourism products when you go to these places. So if you're looking for an organized tour, or you're looking for what the guidebook tells you to do, it's going to be those easy to reach places. And those are going to be the ones that have the most damage Mm -hmm. Uh, at the same time. You know, it's a little bit up to the tourists to, to push beyond that or ask for more or just seek more as well. So it's kind of a weird balance. Um, I don't think there's any right answers, but uh, you know, I at least like to think that I can, you know, walk the line where I'm, still getting out in the mountains, still having a great time and minimizing my impact and hopefully minimizing the people that choose to follow me later. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I think there, there's probably a couple of listeners thinking like, well, you could minimize your impact by not taking people there on workshops. But I would argue that having someone like you who actually thinks about these kinds of things and is probably going to be teaching people some of these ethics, like those are the kinds of people we want teaching workshops. So I would argue that I would rather have someone like you teaching workshops than not at all. So thanks for, for doing that. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. And that's, I mean, I think that, uh, I think you nailed it on, on that sort of theme. I think the more people that are going out on workshops, um, people that lead workshops typically are pretty respectful of the, uh, types of environments that are there, you know, at the end of the day, it's their business is, is these places. So, um, I don't know a lot of wildlife photographers that are leading wildlife tours that are, you know, harming or crowding animals. Usually they're teaching the best practices on, you know, how to, how to get those shots without affecting wildlife. And it's the same thing with landscape photographers. A lot of us um, really, really respect the environment and, and want to not only minimize our impact, but yeah, definitely mm-hmm. being pretty vocal about why we're doing, why we're making certain choices uh, and why we're not. But Yeah. So let's uh let's shift gears for a minute and talk a little bit about authenticity. <laughs> what uh what does yeah. what does authenticity mean to you? <laughs> <laughs> I think I I kind of touched on it earlier, but my uh, I always when I travel, I always travel to go do something, and uh, I certainly think there's this big um, there's this weird trend right now that is you know, we're curating our lives. So they look amazing. Um, and I've been around enough people that, you know, whether they have a vlog or a, uh, you know, just a big Instagram account or something. And it's one of the things that, um, gets left behind a lot is, is the idea like, why, 
or I see it in, and maybe the same, you know, I shouldn't put words in other people's mouths, but I see it happening where I'm like, Oh, is this really what you're about? Or are you just showing, you know, you're kind of alluding to something that's not actually taking place anymore. Um, and I think, you know, you definitely see it in the adventure photo world. Um, and it's something, you know, again, in Banff, I can drive, I can see the portfolio of images without getting out of my car in Banff. It'd be pretty easy. Um, we have a lot of roadside locations. You don't have to even wear waterproof shoes <laughs> um, and you'd stay dry the whole time, you know? Um, but that's not an adventure. That's, you're just kind of making it up. So I think, um, you know, just being honest about what you're doing and why you're doing it. I go to the easy locations. I photograph them. They're beautiful. They're easy. If I wake up and it's sunrise, you know, I don't have, always have time to get somewhere um, unique or cool. So you, you go back to the same places, but you can do it in a way that, uh, you know, just being honest about it and make that day more about the photography maybe than it is about the adventure. If you're sharing those stories. Yeah, you're right. I've, I've definitely seen a huge trend of, um, especially larger accounts, um, for whatever reason, they're embellishing the experience as something that it wasn't. Cause you know, like you said, you've, you've seen lots and lots of pictures of Banff where people are, you know, using all of these fancy ways to describe the experience. And what they're not telling you is like 180 degrees behind them is a parking lot full of cars. You know, it's like, that's, I mean, maybe they have a different definition of adventure or something that's exciting, but um, that's not super <laughs> adventurous to me, but uh, um, I see a lot of people doing that too. And uh, you know, they, they describe, various workshops that they've attended you know like oh i like went on this uh, epic hike and found this amazing composition and i don't know like every time i see that kind of stuff i'm like no you didn't <laughs> like you paid someone money they took you to a place they told you where to put the camera tripod and you took a picture like that's what happened <laughs> you know <laughs> right uh, it's just, and I don't know, maybe for them, it was a lot more exciting than that. Um, I'm obviously I'm distilling down their experience, but I guess it just comes from like the way people describe their photos online. It's just, I don't know, man, it's just be real. <laughs> well, I think that's what it is as well. Like I'm sure if you came up here and we went shooting, um, if we went to one of those, you know, if you came up to Banff and you've never been here, I think, um, we had this conversation when I, about mistaken identity, but you've never been up here before. Yeah. Um, so like if you came up, shooting Moraine Lake might be one of those locations that you want to go to. And understandably so. It looks like this. It's like a photographer designed the place. It's so easy to photograph <laughs> and so perfect. And uh, so we'd go photograph that. But then, you know, if that whether it went on your website or it went just on social media, you can go to those places and make it about the photography, make it about this beautiful scene. You're in the mountains. You can talk about, you know, how surreal it was photographing this place you knew, but you're not saying you're not talking about the hike that it took us to get there. You're not, you're not kind of putting on a false front. So I think it's, you know, it's exactly what you said. Just be real. Yeah, exactly. I'd probably say something like, Oh, I finally made it to Canada. Um, I've been wanting to see this place for a long time. Uh, my friend Jeff took me there and we got some amazing pictures and had a really great time. It's such a beautiful place. Um, yeah, I would just be real about it. I wouldn't say like, Oh my God, it was like a 17 mile hike both ways. And, um, but like, it's a good thing. I bought these waterproof boots that, um, in a tag in my post cause <laughs> so that I hope they see it. You know what I, It's like, it's just, I don't know what is driving people to do that. It's just very, 
people just wanting attention or commercial jobs. It's just, I don't know, it's strange. I just, I feel like we can all see through it. That's, I guess that's my point is like, we can see, see right through all that, you know? Yeah. And I always wonder if people, um, you know, I always wonder about what it's like seeing this content. If you, if you live in the city and you don't spend that much time in the mountains, if it's more difficult to see between those lines. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people, I know when they do come up here and they realize that some of these locations literally are, are right out the car window, um, people are often surprised, like how easy it is. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. So, you know, we might see through it, but we consume an awful lot of this because all of our friends are photographers and we, you know, we look at images constantly. Um, so we see through things that maybe, you know, maybe the general audience doesn't. And it's always hard to put yourself in that perspective, or at least I struggle with that, is understanding what other people see. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And I think to your point as well, um, which I kind of alluded to earlier, you know, people will have varying degrees of definitions of adventure and, you know, who am I to say that, you know, going to going to Banff and going to all those places right off the road isn't an adventure to to somebody like I totally could see that. Um, and maybe that is the way they felt about it, that it was a giant adventure. It's just uh, I don't know. It is interesting seeing kind of how people talk about their photography or their adventures when like really I don't know. Maybe they just have a def- different definition. <laughs> yeah, I always think if the, uh, you know, you can't call a place remote if I can find the public transportation directions to it on the internet. <laughs> You're not exactly off the, uh, you know, out there. So there's certainly, uh, uh, yeah, there's, a, a, there's varying degrees of, of what is an adventure to everybody, but I guess there's probably like a baseline in where certain words um you know, shouldn't be associated with, with, um, certain experiences just based on the fact that, you know, no, it is as easy as taking the city bus there. So Mm -hmm. it's not, you know, it's hard to say, although at the same time I can go jump on the bus in the city and, and get out and, you know, feel out of place and feel uh, overwhelmed by my surroundings. So it's kind of a funny, you know, juxtaposition to think of it that way. So, you know, it depends a lot about where your upbringing is and, and what you do outside. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, if you if you've never been to a big city before, you know maybe traveling around New York City would have a very different feel than if you lived there your whole life. To to your point, like us being photographers that go to these places all the time, and it's kind of just part of our lifestyle. Uh, you know, we kind of take it for granted a little bit how amazing some of these places really are. And if you've never seen anything like that before, it can be pretty pretty incredible for sure so um i definitely don't want to downplay that yeah exactly yeah yeah are there other um are there other aspects of authenticity that you see especially from like a content creation or uh or like working with brands perspective uh, maybe not authenticity. One thing that I think, and it kind of comes back to that idea of what we were talking about, about being, you know, minimizing our impact. It's something that's super hard to control, but whenever I'm shooting for a client, I always take the time to jump through the hoops that are required to get in certain shots. Um, when I say always, I'm sure there's some, some moments where, you know, I'm walking that fine gray line, but um, and I know like in the U S the national parks are very strict about, uh, product photography in the parks and that's mm-hmm. starting to come back on on influencers who are doing it um and then you know there's a little bit of uh 
there's public outcry through some some Instagram accounts, maybe uh, you know whether it's trolling or just attacking people about it. And then there's also um, you know maybe the the legal end of things where the you know the national park is reaching out and saying, hey, you shouldn't have done this. But I always try to you know play it the right way. And um, I think as consumers, that's one way we can limit the impact. Is you know if you see a photograph of um, you know of a place that you know is sensitive and where there shouldn't be a tent set up is you know, letting that company know or even just like choosing to buy a different brand tent if that's what you're looking for. Mm. Um, and like, you know, being, you know, that, that's obviously that's hard making, you know, encouraging everyone to be a super responsible consumer. Um, but it is a way to, to start to downplay that and to, to um, push people towards being more authentic and doing things the right way. Yeah. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, the dollar is king, right? I mean, uh, I know I don't know if you were following this whole backcountry.com thing where they were suing companies for using the word backcountry uh and there was a huge <laughs> huge backlash from from the outdoor community about that and um I don't know like as soon as I saw that um I was I'm actually a an affiliate partner with backcountry.com and I actually went in through my affiliate company and I terminated my agreement with them just because I thought what they were doing was completely ridiculous so yeah i think i think there's a lot of power in kind of who we support why we support them like money isn't everything and sometimes values should should be a much uh higher than the dollar <laughs> yeah for sure and that i mean the backcountry.com thing is a great example of uh you know a company you know maybe whether or not legally they overstepped their boundaries isn't for me to say, but they certainly um, affected their public image a lot. Yeah. And, you know, I'm actually just looking at their, uh, their Instagram right now. They've, they've deleted some images. I think that uh, had the bulk of the bad posts and, and are just trying to you know carry on as if nothing happened. But it's one of those things that I, I hope that maybe consumers, you know, keep it in mind for a lot longer than that, you know, three or four day, for the news cycle that uh, we tend to forget about the issues we were just really angry about. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Um, it's, it's interesting how, you know, people's motivations um, often drive their behavior. I, I, I think people know I'm a psychology guy. I've got my master's degree in clinical psychology and I love thinking and studying kind of social psychology and what kind of what, drives people to behave a certain way. And that's definitely not limited uh, by photography. I love thinking about, you know, when I see a trend or when I see a certain type of behavior online, or if I see certain photographers promoting themselves in a certain way online or whatever, like I'm always, I'm not judging. I'm just always like, huh, that's interesting. I wonder what's motivating them to do those things because, you know, they're taking, they're making conscious decisions to do those, those things. And obviously the motive of behind it is what's driving it. So that's kind of what I'm always thinking about. <laughs> yeah. It's super funny to think about. I always think about that when I get together with large groups of photographers and it's so hard to gauge. Yeah. The motivation that people have and also their experience levels, um, with different things, uh, you know, in the outdoors and I've certainly been there. Um, you know, I, I ski tour a lot and we get to go up and play on glaciers a fair bit. And, um, and then you see people, uh, posting images from an ice cave or something in the middle of a glacier. And you're like, Oh, I wonder if that person knew 
you know, the safety or the skills required to get there safely, um, you know, or did they literally just walk up? And sometimes it's a fairly beaten path up, you know, up to one of these cool ice caves that's opened up. They get on the radar pretty quick of everyone in the area. Um, but it's, you know, there's a little bit more risk there than there is going, um, you know, you know on, on a regular hike. So <laughs> I was curious what, what people are thinking and if they're doing any of their research. Um, and I mean, you guys last winter, you guys had one of the biggest snow years in Colorado and, I know that the avalanche uh, risk associated with that was was off the charts, and there was a lot of historic avalanches in Colorado last year. Um, so when you, you start thinking about those environmental aspects as well, are people you know doing their homework and going out there in a safe way, or is there an awful lot of um, risk being uh, you know ignored? I guess just to go chase a shot down. Well, I can tell you through some of my own personal research uh, that. There is definitely a subset of the population that is driven by kind of seeing what other people have done on YouTube or on Instagram or whatever, and um, they completely ignore the idea that maybe you should think about how to prepare before you leave the house. Um, I used to, every year, write like a pretty long blog article that kind of... um, talked about and analyzed all of the uh, mountaineering deaths in Colorado for the past year. Um, and uh, yeah, there was a particular year, not too long. I think it was two years ago. Um, there's a mountain not too far from the Maroon Bells there that you were visiting called Capitol Peak that um, had like five deaths um, in one year. And uh, when you kind of, kind of read into the circumstances surrounding those deaths. It was a lot of people that had never been mountain climbing before who, who had seen, you know, YouTube videos of, um, there's like a famous, there's a famous thing you have to do for that mountain is called traversing the knife edge. And it's pretty, it's pretty scary, especially when you're watching a wide angle, uh, GoPro camera helm (laughs) or helmet cam, uh, of it where, you know, it looks super exaggerated, but, uh, um, yeah, a lot of people went to do it and then they didn't do their research on how to get back down and they took the wrong way down and then they died. Like all five people died in the exact same way. They, they left the trail too soon where you shouldn't. And, uh, yeah, it's just, um, it's interesting, um, what people will do for. Oh, I just, you know, talking to friends that work in public safety here in our mountain parks and, uh, you certainly, the you know, the numbers climb every year about the amount of rescues they're doing. And uh, there's always, anytime you go in the backcountry, there's always the chance of something bad happening. Um, I, I'm so thankful that we live in Canada and a lot of the places I recreate, there's great services for rescue if it ever comes up. You know, I know I won't hesitate to hit a button on the spot to get rescue or something. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, there's a kind of a trend that they're talking about here is people are almost relying on that as a way to get out. Oh, when, yeah. <laughs> when things start to, when you start to struggle and that's not what those services are for. Those services are for the worst day of your life kind of thing. Um, yeah. And uh, so it's unfortunate to, to, you know, hear about you're talking about people passing away. And even if it's, even if people are just getting in way over their heads and, and using resources, there's a, uh, yeah, it's sort of unfortunate because it's going to, it ends up, you know, sort of affecting everyone down the line. Oh, totally. I mean, it's a huge drain on resources. Um, 
I mean, eventually some of these places are going to be like limited and restricted based on certain criteria that, you know, if you're kind of a responsible person and you do your research, you're not really going to want to jump through those hoops. So, um, yeah, it's just too bad. Uh, I don't know, like my whole goal of writing those blog posts every year was to just try to shine a light on like, hey, these are dangerous activities. Here are some things you need to think about before you leave the house. Hopefully me writing about all of these people who have died might get you to think about that. Um, and I, I don't know. I, th- I think it was relatively effective, but um, it was also really hard to do because people don't want to talk about people dying, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And the um, there's definitely a, uh, uh, you know, I guess you can learn a lot of lessons by reading about those things. And it's hard to... Um, it's hard. I think we live in, oddly enough, being in Colorado and Alberta, although we live far apart, we're in the Rockies. And I think the Rockies are unique for North America and how fast you can get in over your head here. Um, yeah. You know, I think there's uh, 54 14ers in Colorado. And a lot of those are nothing more than high altitude walks or, you know, light hikes uh, based on tech, technical difficulties. So people go out and do a couple, they get comfortable. And then the next one they choose Um you know, it can be really hard, really quick. And you haven't spent those, you know, six hours getting up from a low valley through the forest. You're like in the Alpine right away. And that's what we deal with here is, you know, we're basically, we park and we're near tree line a lot of the time. So we're up into the Alpine, into big environments in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the time you're in super safe places and a lot of times you're not. And if you don't know what the differences are, you're just, you know, there's a huge, a huge mentality shift that needs to happen to stay safe in certain places or just knowing to avoid them based on time of year or weather conditions or snow conditions or whatever it is. Right. Or like just knowing your limitations or knowing like, Oh, this particular type of rock, you know, it's, if I don't make the right decision, it's probably going to come down on top of me, but you don't know that unless you've experienced it, seen it, spent time around it. Um, it's yeah, it's hard, man. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, cool. Let's, uh, let's talk about like photography again. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the things that, uh, I was hoping to talk to you a little bit about, um, n- knowing that you do a lot of uh, commercial work was, uh, kind of this idea of like searching for clients versus shooting, shooting what you love. Like how do you balance those two things as someone who gets their income from photography? Yeah, I think I'm pretty fortunate um, to have a, a, some great clients and, and work I really love. I also um, just sort of decided pretty early on in my career that I wasn't going to shoot things that didn't resonate with me. Now, I certainly have done a few jobs that, you know, in hindsight, I was like, oh, that really wasn't my style. Um, or, you know, I was that didn't go the way I, I thought it would. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I, you know, I'm, I'm choosing my clients you know, if I'm reaching out to people, I'm choosing people I want to work with and these images suit my style. And if people are coming to me, I'm just not afraid to to say no or, you know, the best thing you can do is say, you know, hey, I can't do that, but I know someone who would love to and refer someone yeah. who, um, you know, maybe has a little different style than you and uh, help out help out a friend in the community that, you know, will jump at that opportunity that isn't really speaking to you. Um, and uh, so I, you know, I'm lucky. I, I feel like, I can't remember the last time I did something that was completely, you know, out in left field from what I want to focus on, which is, 
you know, outdoor adventure. I do joke that a lot of what I shoot is adventure my parents can do. I don't do a lot <laughs> of um, hardcore stuff that is maybe what, uh, well, not to call myself hardcore, but there's a, a difference in what I'm going to ski uh, with my friends on my day off versus what I'm going to ski with clients. Cause you know, I, usually I'm in the tourism realm, which is more of a, a softer form of adventure. Um, mm-hmm. But it's still a reasonable activity that is important to me, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'm curious, like when you're out taking pictures for clients, how do you how do you know that you're getting the right kinds of shots that are going to work for what they're what you're what you're trying to do for them? Ooh, it kind of works in two different ways. There's some companies, um, you know, especially if they've been attracted to me through my social media, um, that you just sort of trust that they're looking for the style of shot that you typically shoot. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, more and more lately, especially with tourism clients uh, on the commercial side, you're sitting down. You're looking through sample images with them, uh, kind of creating a mood board and a shots list. Um, you know, whether you're using uh, other people's artwork or, or photographs as kind of inspiration. Uh, and you're going out with a, a pretty curated list. And um, I've been doing that more and more. Even when the client's not asking for it, I still put it together. And um, I find if I go out with a shots list of 15 shots, it takes me half the time. Um, and uh, you just get so much more work done in a hurry. And you also um, get an idea in your mind about what you need certain light to be. So you have you know, the 10 shots you need to get in golden hour. And then you have that handful of shots that allows you to extend your shooting day. And they're the shots you can get when you know maybe the light's not as good just by walking into the shade or staying out in the sunlight. Um, so just making a, a good detailed shots list. Um, I did have a recent... Um, sort of experience uh, shooting for salsa cycles for the first time. And, um, you know, when I submitted the images, it was really cool. They gave me feedback and they basically said like, oh, half the images are exactly what we're looking for in this half. Um, this is what we would have wanted to see differently. And it was a great learning experience. It wasn't done, you know, they weren't upset. It didn't bother me. It was just a really cool way to learn, knowing yeah. that the next time I shoot a new product for them, not to waste, you know, a day or two shooting these shots that I thought they were going to love. And they're like, eh. Yeah, not really what we wanted. And and maybe I could have prevented that with a little more research. Um, by the end of the day, it's cool to learn and, and uh, you know, have that dialogue. Yeah, that seems like it's a it's a gift. And they I'm assuming they probably wouldn't have said that to you if they weren't hope, planning on hiring you in the future. So, yeah, exactly. It is sort of one of those confirmation things again. And they're like, next time we'd want, right. you know, these images. You're like, oh, that's, that's a good sign. Right. Otherwise, <laughs> like if they didn't send you any feedback there is no next time <laughs> yeah and it's um i definitely i think it's one of those things you learn to as a photographer oftentimes you submit images and you don't hear anything mm-hmm. um and that doesn't necessarily mean good news or bad news it just means you submitted images to someone who's probably really busy uh, right and um so I, I know i really value it whenever a client does you know reach out and say like hey that was exactly what we wanted or like we love that um, but if you're new to it and you're not getting that feedback, I don't think people should beat themselves up about it. Cause it doesn't actually, um, you know, it's, I don't know about your experience, but for me, it's, it's surprisingly rare that you get that direct feedback. Oh, absolutely. Usually it's no news or like, Oh, this is great. Thank you. You know, or whatever. So, um, which is obviously better than God, this sucked. <laughs> 
but uh it's interesting <laughs> I, I i struggle with that with like prints too like selling prints to people i often find a lot of times people don't like write you back like oh i got the print and it looks awesome like usually you have to kind of ask them like hey did everything look turn out okay is it what you expected um i've yet to have someone say like oh it actually looks like crap so that's good but you never know you know it's like did this meet your expectation or or what you know yeah i know that's um you know printing on aluminum now uh i've certainly received a lot of prints at home and have a little bit of damage that um from the shipping process that need to get replaced but then at the same time when i'm selling these same prints i'm rarely getting that feedback so it's one of those things that you know you hope they're getting there fine but if you don't hear about it um i don't know how much your responsibility is on us as the photographer to, to reach out and how much it's safe to assume that you would hear if you uh you know if something was wrong but yeah, I, I agree 100% with print sales. It's a pretty small part of my business, but I think I've been honest to say I've never heard back uh, about it. So yeah, it's kind of a curious way to think about it. Yeah, I had um, a couple of years ago, I sold a really, really, really big triptych to somebody on metal. And um, it sounds like you print a lot on metal. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but occasionally there can be a defect in that Chromalux metal where... Um, they, they can't actually see the defect until after the printing process is completed. And if you look at the print straight on, it looks completely fine. But if you look at it from an angle, it almost looks like it has like a dent in it or a divot. Um, and there's not a physical dent or divot. It's just like a defect in the metal and the way that the, the print adhered to it. And um, I, had, I had one of them that had one of those defects in it. And it was like in the middle panel and yeah, that was a that was a disaster to deal with that because the print lab didn't want to replace it, and uh, it was just a nightmare. So, but yeah, usually I don't get feedback. <laughs> I've, I've been fortunate. The few times I have asked for reprints, the uh, labs have usually been pretty uh, pretty easy to deal with. Um, and uh, but yeah, I can just imagine, especially as they get bigger, everyone's assuming a lot of costs there, and if it's uh, you know, some things fall on, on the print lab, some things would fall on the, you know, the quality of the image. Um, and I can see that opening up a can of worms, uh, pretty quick. Yeah. And my goal is to never, for it to never be my fault, you know, like, like it either needs to be a problem with the print lab or, or ship the shipper, but not me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well then, I'm curious what you do with your print sales. I always struggle with um, part of it's being in Canada and selling prints to the U.S. Um, there's a greater shipping cost, so I often just print in the U.S. and mail directly to the client, sure. um, which it works great, but it's unfortunate because you don't get to sign or include anything, you know, even a nice card or anything with it that just says thanks. So I'm curious what uh, you know what you do for your print sales and how you you know deal with the kind of the client relation side of that. Yeah, I've definitely done a mixture of those things, um, depending on the product and whatnot. Uh, the challenge with metal, at least from my perspective, is, um, and I know, I know somebody listening is going to write me and say, "Well, didn't you know you could do this?" But I haven't really found a good way to, you know, sign metal. <laughs> uh, I know you can do it digitally and have it embedded in the print, but I think that looks—it's just stupid. Um, you know, it's like, it's like a gimmick, but, uh, um, I don't know. I usually drop ship all my stuff 
with some exceptions, I'm doing I'm doing a couple of acrylics for a couple of clients um, here coming up where I'm actually gonna I'm fortunate because the I'm gonna be uh, in the town that the print lab is at just right before the print's gonna be done. So I'm fortunate that I'll be able to go in, inspect the print, and sign it um, before they face mount it with acrylic and then ship it. So I feel lucky in that one. But usually I drop ship, um, which I think. Unless you're doing limited editions, um, super high-end stuff, I think most people don't really expect more than that. But I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's always curious to hear what uh, different people do. And I, I know a couple of photographers that deal with a lot of, uh, a lot of limited edition prints. And that's sort of how they um, market all their work. So I guess it makes more sense that they're signing it perhaps than... You know, and I almost consider a print sale just as a nice bonus at the end of the day. It's not a something that I'm focusing on. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean. Uh, so I just shift her off. Yeah, I guess if you're focusing on limited, like limited editions at a very high cost, um, I think people expect, you know, a certificate of authenticity. They want it to be signed. Um, you know, I think there's just a higher bar that you're you're meeting with that product. But at the same time, there's only a very small handful of people in the world that can afford that kind of stuff. So um, I consciously made a decision this year to not focus on limited editions because I felt like it kind of limits the number of people that can have your artwork hanging in their walls. And I didn't like that idea as someone who highly values um, a more egalitarian society. And so I didn't want to do that. So I, yeah, I, I try to cater a product to every level personally. I think with uh, the way my print sales go, I could, whether I'm doing a limited edition or a uh, unlimited number, I don't think I'm affecting the amount of people putting it on their walls. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> it's just, just too small of a focus. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I, I feel that. Yeah, it's tough. All right, man. Well, I have a, like one more question for you. Um, why do you take pictures? You just saved the uh, easy questions for the end, do you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it kind of comes down to two different things. Um, the easiest answer is there's just nothing I enjoy more. I have some hobbies. I'm really passionate about cycling and skiing. But at the end of the day, it's my favorite thing to do is just to go out and fiddle with my camera. And it's sort of the only creative outlet I have where I lose myself uh, in what I'm doing and and just kind of search for the moments and what looks good. And it's, it's, uh, it's like a really nice way to shut my brain off to everything else and do that. Um, and I think from a more, uh, you know, sort of a practical point of view, um, you know, when I used to do seasonal work and, and was looking at magazines and pouring through images as inspiration for my own travels, um, you know, I would love to just inspire people to get out and explore on their own and kind of go see more of the planet. I think I, you know, I don't value anything more than I value the the travel experiences I've had. And uh, I think more people should, should make that a priority in their life. And maybe some of my images will help make that happen. Nice. If, uh, if, if Instagram and social media didn't exist and you do, and you weren't doing this for, to make a living, how would that impact um, your, your approach to photography? I mean, obviously I'd do it a lot less if it wasn't my daily job. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the benefits of doing it full time is I get to shoot a lot, but the, 
I don't think it would change that much in terms of the locations I'm going to. Maybe I wouldn't be as picky about what people are wearing, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I would still travel. I would still shoot and, and um, you know, I'd still do a lot of the same things. And, you know, if money was no object, I'd probably still want to shoot commercially. Uh, you might just be way more selective about, you know, who the clients are or, you know, only shoot a handful of projects a year. But mm-hmm. um, I don't think it would change it overly a lot. I, I know that my relationship with Instagram goes back and forth. Uh, it's been hugely instrumental in my career. Uh, it, it certainly was early on getting started. And at the same time, uh, you know, some of the negatives we talked about today certainly weigh on my mind about what sharing images and kind of curating a certain look does. So there's a, a balance there. So if it wasn't, if it didn't play as big a role, um, you know, truthfully, I think it would allow me to just uh, almost focus on the create, creative side more and not, uh, you know, not always have that small uh, voice in my head going, Oh, what, you know, what will look good on my Instagram or what will, you know, what does the client want for theirs? Um, and just, yeah. just be able to shoot what, actually is the best image somewhere. Right. I don't know if it's ever happened to you. I've come back from shoots and realized like, oh, wow, I shot, you know, 90% vertical for this whole trip somewhere because vertical images tend to look better on our phones. And that's like the smallest, most insignificant place I want someone to view my photo. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. I actually, um, Yeah, I do that, but it's funny because like Instagram doesn't allow for like two by three vertical, you know, photos, at least not natively, which pisses me off. But um, yeah, I don't I don't shoot for social media, but I I'm I I definitely want to spend more time exploring the whole Instagram and your relationship with that. But I want to do that maybe for our Patreon listeners. So if you have some time and we're done, I'd love to kind of explore that with you further. Yeah, that'd be that sounds great. Cool. So. Tell, tell us a little bit about um, the workshops that you have coming up. Yeah, I partner with two photographers from the, um, well, I shouldn't say from the UK. It's a bad habit. Uh, Connor McNeil lives in Ireland and uh, Zoe Timmers lives in London. Um, and uh, we lead two workshops every year, one in the Faroe Islands and one in Scotland. Uh, for 2020, we're doing it a little, little different and we're going to the Faroe Islands in March. Um, that's earlier than we've ever gone, but we're pretty confident, uh, we're going to get some great light. One of the things that's missing when we go in May is, um, sunrise and sunset happen way too early and way too late. Uh, so if you're doing things throughout the day, it's just impossible to include both of those. Uh, so we're looking forward to going in March and we've heard the lights just that much more dramatic. So I think it's going to be the best one yet. Um, I know a lot of people, when they think about a winter holiday in March, they're thinking about islands that are a little south of the Atlantic uh, in the Caribbean. <laughs> but uh, the cool thing about the Faroes as well is it's not a cold place. Uh, even in the winter, it's uh, probably warmer than where most of us live in North America. So it's uh, they just don't have seasonal fluctuations. And then we're headed to Scotland. Uh, this year, we're focusing more of our time on Isle of Skye. Mm. It's just a little bit of the highlands around Fort William. And uh, that one's coming up at the, uh, I think we started on the 29th of March, going into early April. And that was a new workshop last year. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just really great feedback from our participants last year in a place that we definitely want to keep going back to because it's so beautiful to get a mix of landscapes and in history that we just don't, I don't get to see very often in, in Canada. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, Scotland's high on my list. I actually, uh, uh, my dad just had a 70th birthday and we did a like a whiskey tasting party and everyone got to bring like a surprise whiskey. And I brought a, a scotch from the island of, from the Isle of Skye uh, called Talisker, which was really tasty. So definitely would love to go check Scotland out myself sometime. <laughs> Yeah, it's really cool. The hotel we stay at on Sky, um, it's a little out of the, well, Portree is the only town on the, or only large town on the island, and we're outside of that. But uh, the hotel bar has 400 bottles of uh, scotch on on the menu, and it's pretty cool. To, uh, I know last year it was certainly the uh, workshop was equal parts uh, night and day. It was uh, <laughs> just a little different, uh, little different education going on at night, but it was pretty cool to sample um, you know, obviously not close to all of them, but uh, a good variety. That's awesome. <laughs> cool, man. So uh, who would you recommend uh, we try to get here on the podcast for our listeners to listen to? Uh, two people that um, come up to mind right away are Jack Fusco. Uh, he's based in San Diego mm-hmm. uh, and shoots only night images. And I just love how he's um, really found a kind of a narrow niche um, and has turned it into a career and just absolutely love his work. We have worked together a fair bit as well as a good friend. And uh, I think he'd be a great person to talk to. Um, and then there's a wildlife photographer here in Canmore, John Marriott, who does some beautiful work. And I know he's um, recently become a member of the uh, ILCP, so the International League of Conservation Photographers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I know it's a big thing in his mind is, is shooting wildlife uh, ethically and responsibly. So he'd be a really interesting person to, to speak to. Yeah. I follow, follow him on Twitter. <laughs> I really enjoy uh, hearing him rant about various things relating to wildlife and hunting and responsible hunting and things like that. I, he's a, I really like his, his photography also. <laughs> And uh, I have one more. I didn't. Uh, I don't believe she's been on the show. It just came to me while we were chatting. But uh, Sarah Lindsay Photography. Uh, she's a, a photographer out of uh, Salmon Arm, which is um, in the sort of center part of British Columbia. And uh, I'm just blown away. She does unreal long exposure landscape work, but she also she shoots everything and she does everything super well. So she shoots weddings, engagements, newborns. Um, landscapes as good as anyone. I think it's so cool to see someone who can, uh, you know, somehow be good at, you know, 10 genres. Cause I know if I walked into a, you know, a wedding shoot, I'd be, I'd be pretty poor at it. So it's cool to see someone that can, can really do it all. Nice. Cool, man. Well, thanks. Um, I really appreciate you spending the time and sharing, sharing some of your thoughts on these, these tricky subjects. So thanks so much. No problem. I've enjoyed it. All right. Well, thank you to Jeff for joining us on the show. I really appreciate your thoughts and for all you're doing to move the needle on responsible landscape photography. If you enjoyed our conversation and want more, join us on Patreon for another 25 minutes of conversation all about Instagram. Just visit www.patreon.com slash f-stop and listen. Speaking of Patreon, I really want to spend some time and thank our recent patrons for their support of the podcast. So thank you to Joao Farao for joining us over on Patreon, and thanks to Ken Dono for increasing your pledge. Really appreciate it. All right, well, speaking of uh, 
our supporters over on Patreon. Um, thanks to your support, we have created a $1,500 Landscape Photography Conservation Award. We are seeking nominations through the end of the year, and we will be awarding uh, shortly after the first of the year after the judges have decided. Um, you can find details on that in the liner notes of the podcast, and you can learn all about some of our sponsors for the award who are also donating some incredible products. First up, we have uh, QT Luang. Uh, he is supporting the award. Uh, he is the amazing photographer and author of Treasured Lands. Photographed over 25 years, Treasured Lands is the most complete photography book about all of the 61 U.S. national parks. I've seen the book in person and I can tell you that it deserves all of its six national book awards. It will inspire you with excellent images, open your eye to their diversity, and help you plan your own shots with first-hand location notes for each photograph. The trade edition has been a bestseller and is offered at a very competitive price. However, there is also a limited edition now valued at $245 and QT is donating a copy to the winner of the Landscape Conservation Award. We also received a uh, donation from Viewbug. They they are the popular photo sharing and contest website, and they are donating a Pro Plus membership of the award uh, to the winner of the award, and that is a $179 value. Uh, Tamron, the camera lens manufacturer, is donating a 45 millimeter lens, which is a $600 value. Read Art and Imaging, Uh, they are a fine art print lab located in Denver, Colorado. They actually just printed a 40 by 60 acrylic print for me, which I'm really excited uh, to see the end results of that. And they're donating to the winner a $500 credit towards the purchase of an acrylic print. And lastly, Shimoda Designs. Uh, They are a camera backpack manufacturer that just finished a really successful Kickstarter campaign. and they have an amazing uh, camera backpack, which I have a pretty nice review of on my website, which is in the liner notes. They are donating a camera bag, um, a core unit, and a roller and accessory case to the winner, which is a $779 value. Thank you, Shimoda and Reed and Tamron and Viewbuck and QT Long. Really appreciate it. All right. Well, let's talk about who is coming up on the podcast. I am really excited. Uh, Next up, we have Jonathan Tilley. Uh, We had a really fun conversation with him about personal branding. I'm going to use some some of my own personal experiences to kind of talk through some thinking you might want to have about personal branding. Um, Here in about 20 minutes, I'll be recording with uh, Luka Asenko. He's a photographer based in Slovenia. Uh, We have Brenda Tharp, a photographer from Sonoma County, California. Uh, Toby Harriman, a photographer living in Alaska and San Francisco. Uh, Jerry Greer, a photographer from Appalachia. Uh, Nikki Rauch, a sales coach. And lastly, Christian Fletcher, a photographer from Australia. All right, well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.